This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. to FIGP's podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. FIGP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FIGP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FIGP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Welcome to FICP's webinar and podcast series, FICP Focus 45. As you probably know, FICP is the only NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys and private practice. As a result, the FICP community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. We are delighted to confirm among our next guests, we will be speaking with Andrew Hirschfeld, the Commissioner of Patents for the United States, and our own Roberto Pistoles. Stay tuned for more on our FICPI Focus 45 schedule via the FICPI website events page, LinkedIn, and the regular FICPI newsletter. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravet, and I'm a partner at Boreskin and Par in Montreal, Canada. I'm a registered patent agent in Canada and the United States, and I work in the fields of quantum technology, AI, telecommunications, mechanical engineering, and information technology. Today, we will be having a conversation with Jim Pruley, who has a distinguished career in the IP world and really needs no introduction. And today we're gonna to be talking about trade secrets, but we can't talk about that. Jim, welcome to the, to the webinar, and thank you very much for spending some time with us. Um, I guess one of the questions to start off the conversation is, you know, trade secrets is becoming bigger and bigger than it was. Why is there a resurgence in attention for this topic these days? Well, thank you, Louis-Pierre. Uh, I think we've all heard this cliche about data being the new oil. What that refers to really is the fact that I think most of the people who are on this call have witnessed during their lifetime, or at least it's occurred during their lifetime, that the biggest shift in the, in the nature of business assets since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We've gone from basically 40 years from 1975, where uh, intangible assets represented around 15% of the, of the wealth 
of publicly traded enterprises to the point where it's shifted now about 85%. And, and that's a massive, massive change in what it is that businesses count as their most valuable assets. So that's the good news. But the challenging news is that all of these assets are extremely vulnerable and fragile, in part because of the way that we store them and communicate them through networks that are essentially um, unreliable. And not just that, but the way in which business runs at such a high speed these days, there's a kind of a built-in demand for sharing of information with other companies. Um, the, the business that can get along with doing all of its innovation inside is basically over. Uh, everybody needs to collaborate with you know, upstream with um, vendors, downstream with customers, and sometimes even with competitors in order to deal with the global market. And so everyone is very focused on how do we, how do, we do this? I mean, one of the, when I was at WIPO, part of my job was to go around and see um, and visit with our biggest customers around the world to find out what we could do to make the PCT work better for them. And what I heard pretty consistently was the, the PCT was, was fine and they liked the service that they got. But a lot of the people who were in charge of IP strategy at these companies were profoundly concerned about what they would what they can do with the information that isn't protected through the patent system. And that represents the kind of new attention that we're getting on trade secrecy. So there's more attention. I think there's a, a global realization, as you pointed out, that you know, data is the new oil. So, you know, fundamentally, all companies now are data companies because that's part of what makes their value. What are some of the initiatives we've seen in, for example, the United States or in the EU in terms of addressing some of the concerns that you've identified? Oh, it, it, I think it was not coincidental uh, that in 2016, we had these two major initiatives on either side of the Atlantic coming to fruition, the EU Trade Secrets Directive and the uh, in the US, the Defend Trade Secrets Act. I mean, it, it may come as a surprise to some, but you could have made the argument up until early 2016 that the US was not in compliance with TRIPS because it did not offer a federal civil claim for trade secret misappropriation since it, it only had a criminal statute since uh, the mid-90s. And so what happened, I think, was as a result of the forces that we were talking about just uh, a moment ago, businesses um, kind of made it clear to regulators and legislatures on both sides of the Atlantic that, that something had to be done to increase you know, the efficiency and the robustness of the tools that were available to enforce these rights. That was particularly a challenge, I think, in the EU, because you had uh, such a variation in the level of protection. And so the Trade Secrets Directive did a lot to harmonize those laws, not, not completely. There still is not criminal protection uh, everywhere, and there's still a fair amount of variation, but it's, it became a lot friendlier for business. And, and it's not just in the EU and the US that these changes have been made. We've seen major amendments to trade secret laws in, in Japan and in South Korea and Taiwan and in China. 
as a result of the, um, I think largely as the result of the phase one um, trade agreement, uh, which put its major focus on trade secret laws, uh, China has, has stepped up uh, very substantially. So this is happening around the globe. It has to do with global business. And so um, I think most countries are responding to try to provide meaningful enforcement remedies. Given the fact that most companies today anyway, need to share information one way or another, um, and yet at the same time, also need to implement the necessary structure and infrastructure to, to protect that information from unauthorized use. What has changed with cross-border trade secret misappropriation and, and how, so how are companies and governments adapting to this new reality? Yeah, the first way I think they're adapting is, is about awareness that the looking at the world as a whole, it's, it's kind of a patchwork quilt where enforcement is concerned. And so if you're gonna have an integrated global strategy around maintaining the integrity of these information assets, you have to take account of that variation. And, and you know, at the highest level, for example, all civil law jurisdictions are more of a challenge than are the jurisdictions that allow some form of early discovery so that the trade secret owner can find out what happened. I mean, in every, in every enforcement case, there is information asymmetry because the, you know, the person who's accused of misappropriation, whether they did it or not, they know all the facts, whereas the putative victim doesn't. And so finding ways through either uh, seizure provisions or as in China, uh, the reversal of the burden of proof uh, based on a prima facie presentation, uh, these are methods that are, are being engaged, you know, kind of across the board and businesses are adapting to them uh, both by uh, kind of understanding at a, at a high level, strategic level, what they need to do from place to place and then implementing that in their contracting and other arrangements that they make with the people and the organizations where they have to share information. And they, they're gonna be thinking carefully these days, not only about the reliability of the business partner, but also about the specific provisions of the agreements that they enter into when it comes to enforcement. So you'll see, I, I imagine a lot of activity around uh, choice of law and forum in these kinds of arrangements. So let's touch on litigation or, or trade secret misappropriation for a, li for a little bit. I think you've, you've outlined at least one challenge, which is this patchwork of legislative systems that protect or not some aspects of trade secret protection. What are the other challenges that are facing international trade secret disputes? And I think you alluded as well to um, the, the forum, the choice of, of applicable law as being one of the factors. Yes, it's, um, I, th I think the, the primary one is this, uh, how, do you get, how do you get information uh, exchanged in these kinds of cases? And um, the traditionally, and I think still to a, a large extent these days in civil law jurisdictions, um, you need to have your case pretty well made uh, before you bring it. And uh, whereas in jurisdictions like the, the US and to an extent UK and Canada, 
um, you can expect to get some help from the court early on to help understand uh, what happened so that you know, informed decisions uh, can be made. Uh, but there's also issues around remedies, uh, getting injunctions, uh, how effectively that can happen. What is the reality of being able to get help from the authorities in some, if, if there's uh, at least nominally criminal uh, coverage available, is it going to be as easily available and as uh, robust as it is, for example, in Germany? Um, or are you going to have to, you know, sort of find the right people on the ground who can help you, uh, you know, get find the the, the right uh, folks within the within the authorities to uh, to do what they need to do? And, and so it can get to be very complicated. <laughs> Trying if, if you if you try to solve the problem after it has arisen, you know, the, you find out right away that your options are constrained, and so there's a lot more effort, I think, to move the, you know, the analysis and approach to these kinds of problems upstream by anticipating them and figuring out ahead of time, all right, we're, we're in a situation where this information has to be shared. We're, we're opening a new office in pick a country in Russia, um, and we're going to be employing people there. They need information to help us, but we have a concern about the um, about the ability of the laws there to protect our information. What can we do to minimize, to reduce that risk, perhaps by limiting the kind of information that we send over there? Or there's monitoring that will be you know, more intense in certain places than others. So there's a lot more focus on contracting, on operational risk management uh, because of the awareness of these of these problems of enforcement. Before we move on to some of the things that people can do upstream, one of the thoughts that comes to mind is whether or not uh, arbitration could be potentially a solution, assuming that both parties are willing to submit to arbitration, instead of having to engage a court system uh, in a jurisdiction with which you may not be all that familiar with. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, the the attraction of arbitration for trade secret disputes is kind of obvious in a sense because arbitration tends to be much more controlled and private. And of course, if what you're arguing about is assets that get their value from not being known, it's better not to have to go to a court that's in most countries presumed to be open to the public. So that's a, that's a very good way initially to think about it. However, because of that problem that I noted before, the trade secret owner, if they're entering into um, a submission agreement or including an arbitration clause in their underlying contract, has to be very careful to allow for an appropriate level of discovery that will bring, that will even the playing field uh, between them and the, and the other side. This is <clears throat> most commercial transactions are easy to deal with in arbitration because both sides are well aware of everything that happened and the problems that got them to where they are. Uh, but in trade secret cases, the, that's typically not the case. And so if you're going to have arbitration, think through um, what kind of information you're going to need and also think about uh, who the panel should be. In, in trade secret cases, 
because of the, you know, the nature of the relief that's being sought, the understanding of the impact of information being misused in some way, it's often very helpful to have arbitrators who understand the industry um, in some you know, very specific way. So thinking through those kinds of things can make arbitration uh, very, very useful and, and appropriate for these kinds of cases. But, but let me just supplement that briefly to mention uh, mediation as a, right. an alternative dispute resolution process. That's extremely applicable to trade secret cases because almost all of these cases um, come with um, a heavy baggage of emotional reaction by the parties. There, there are allegations of treachery and betrayal and theft. I mean, this is fault-based litigation. And so trying to get the parties to talk to one another um, in that kind of environment where they, they feel that they've been battered and abused is a challenge for counsel. And so finding uh, a, a good mediator that can help the parties kind of calm down a little bit and perhaps appreciate the opportunities uh, that they have in the underlying relationship to repair the damage of whatever happened. That it's a, it's a very, very helpful method for resolution. So thank you for that. Now, moving a little bit, or shifting gears, if you want, to a certain extent, what can companies do to prepare themselves ahead of time? So we're, we're talking really about companies that have not started to, to share, or maybe have, but in the past, but there's a, there's a new incentive or a new impetus to share some information. What can they do, or what should they be doing internally to prepare themselves to enter into an agreement to share all or part of that information. Okay, well, here I have some really good news. Uh, and what they need to do is pretty well harmonized, no matter where you are. I mean, if we, if we look at the TRIPS agreement, for example, we, we see something that is common to almost all trade secret laws throughout the world, which is that an element is of, of being able to go to court and get relief is that you have taken reasonable steps to help yourself to prevent the loss in the first place. And so focusing on that, uh, <clears throat> the other part of the good news is that in order to satisfy that requirement and also to reduce the risk of loss or contamination from outside information coming in that you don't want, all that a company needs to do is engage in what they will recognize as classical risk management. And so a company that has any concerns in this area that's engaging in any sort of kind of collaborative efforts um, should start the process by taking a look at what they consider to be their crown jewels. What are the most important assets, the things that the managers of the business units will sort of lose sleep about because they, they know what's at risk. So define the things that are most important by category and understand what the risk environment is for information in that category. For example, how many employees have to have access, how many outsiders do, and, what, and what's the risk that people are going to you know, walk off and share some of this information and so forth. And then once you've done that, then you can consider on an informed basis, what are the techniques, the measures that you might be able to take to mitigate those risks? 
Now that's if businesses do this, go through this kind of process all the time with many other kinds of risks, but it applies to information security uh, just as well. So if they do that and they come up with a program and they actually operationalize it, they, they implement it in a meaningful way, they put somebody in charge of it and they review it from time to time because risks are dynamic, uh, then they will have done what businesses are expected to do. So I guess this goes back to the, the old framework where if you had a recipe or you had some information or you had a list of clients or a list of price, when you went home at night, you'd lock it up in a safe because um, it was printed and there were probably you know just a few copies lying around. But in the digital world, it's a little bit different. I mean, you, yeah. you can certainly say you're going to store something with a password or encryption on a server, but sometimes that's not enough. Oh, yeah, no kidding. When I started in this field over 45 years ago, the tool that everyone was most concerned about was the photocopier because <laughs> everything was on paper, right? And there were no networks. And now, of course, uh, a company can have thousands of employees, each one having a smartphone that hooks into the uh, company's network. I mean, the, the IT departments of, of the world um, you know, held back the onslaught as long as they could for this thing called BYOD, bring your own device. And they insisted that everyone had to use Blackberries or, you know, or company devices. And they've lost that battle. And so now we have employees who have all this information on their tablets or smartphones, and they go home at night with this information in their heads, in their smartphones. And what do they do? They get on social media where they have been educated and trained and encouraged to share information. And so this is the, this is the new risk environment that, that companies face. And you know, they can't wish it away. They simply have to engage in more um, effective training and protocols and so forth that, that will reduce those risks. Okay. So um, the company has taken the necessary steps, we, we assume or we presume anyway. So they've got the technical measures in place to limit access to the information. They've got a good catalog of what those trade secrets or what that information is. Now we're entering into an agreement with a third party, an external company, where we need to share some of that information. I suspect that you're going to tell us, well, you need to look at some of the contractual provisions, but you also need to look at some of the technical provisions in order to make sure that there's no inadvertent leak of information in the meantime. So how does that work? Well, again, a great question. In my observation, unscientific observation, but it's it's pretty obvious to me after you know hundreds of these kinds of disputes, the most common source of business-to-business trade secret dispute is um, NDA mismanagement, non-disclosure agreements. We refer to them as NDAs or CDAs. And the fundamental, and it happens in basically two areas. The first one is relates to the contract itself, the terms of the of the NDA. And, and we enter into these things sometimes just because there's a casual inquiry, sometimes because we're interested in looking at an acquisition candidate, sometimes as part of a, of a manufacturing arrangement with a with a vendor. They're they're everywhere. And the problem is. The inside most large corporations, particularly, it's viewed as a form. Now, shall we use my NDA or your NDA? 
and and nobody really pays attention to the very consequential language that's in them. And I just you know give you one example. Um, you know the definition of of confidential information can be very very broad and vague. For example, extending not just to things that are marked as confidential, but to any information that the recipient would ordinarily understand in context should be treated as confidential, right? That's, that's very common. And, and yet, you know, re- recipients uh, don't want to, uh, don't want to have, they want more, they want more uh, predictability. So they'll insist that, well, if, and if there's any verbal disclosures, they, they need to be confirmed in writing. But lo and behold, what happens is, even though they've done that in the contract, when they actually get these notices that come in, nobody looks at them to see whether they were actually um, accurate. And then, you know, the other operational part is that I think we learned this in in grade school. Nobody likes to clean up, right? When the when the relationship comes to an end, um, either abruptly or naturally, uh, somebody has to be in charge of making sure that all of those obligations to handle information in a very restricted way are complied with, that materials are returned, all of this stuff is buttoned up. Because if it's not, it sits there and it's radioactive within the, within the company. There are a lot of other examples I could give, time limits, um, the choice of forum and that sort of thing. Uh, NDAs are a, a minefield and they need a lot of careful attention. Right. And that's, I mean, I think we see this in our, in our respective practices, you know, client will come up to you and say, oh, do you have a, do you have a, a one page NDA I can use for this? And you're like, well, yeah, but it might not help yeah. you. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes, certainly. But be careful what you ask for. Right. It's, uh, yeah. And, and read the fine print. So th- I, this is an interesting conversation. So part of the, so th- there's a legal aspect to all of this. I think we, we all understand that. And I think, the conversation today certainly has underlined the importance of being very attuned to what you're doing when you're crafting these clauses and making sure that the people on your side of the equation and the people on the other side of the equation understand what that language protects. One of the other issues that I think we see also is that sometimes these NDAs are exchanged at a very, um, at a very operational level in a company. You know, it's, right. a, it's a director of R&D or it's a plant manager or it's someone in charge of one particular process talking to someone else. But how often do these NDAs percolate back up to, to the, the organizational structure that can understand, manage, and ensure that there's compliance with these NDAs? Yeah, the, the answer to that uh, depends very much on the institution. When, when I advise clients on uh, improving their information security programs, uh, one of the things I try to get them to do is to centralize the um, whole process of handling NDAs. And and you have to raise awareness, obviously, across the organization to ensure that people are not going to act like cowboys and go do it themselves. Um, And that they they, uh, channel all NDA uh, questions and processes through one place that, that understands very well what the risks are for the institution. That requires a very responsive organization because frequently the NDA will be part of a very fast moving transaction. And you can't afford to sit around for weeks waiting for the legal department to process this. 
But if, but to the extent that you can centralize it, then you will have gone a long way towards trying to bring uh, these kinds of risks um, under under control. So one of the questions that's come up in the in the chat is one of the ways, or it's a question for you. I really don't know the answer. Um, is there is there a movement? Is there uh, some people working on using blockchain, for example, as a mechanism to capture the trade secret information and then be able to track and disclose to authorized parties only uh, that that information using, for example, a blockchain infrastructure? Uh, blockchain is being used. I know of one example because I've worked with them on their system, Aon, the giant uh, in, insurance brokerage also is a consulting company and, and it's created what it calls the trade secret registry that uses blockchain technology to enable companies to identify and keep track of their own secrets and what they're doing to protect them and so forth as a, as a, management, as a management tool. It's, it's possible to use uh, blockchain in other, the blockchain technology in other ways to keep track of, of disclosures outside the organization, but it becomes, becomes a little bit more unwieldy um, in, that, in that kind of environment for a number of technical reasons. Uh, you know, ultimately, um, the issue is usually not keeping track, um, the ability to keep track um, of things. It has to do with uh, management of human behavior. And, uh, and, and that's where you know, much of the focus has to be. I mean, yes, the tools are very important to ensure that uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we get as much uh, centralization of, of, of effort and you know, it, it's, everybody's doing the same thing, um, as much of that as possible. But at, at the end of the day, uh, most information is shared you know, one human being to another, you know, perhaps through, through some process. Yeah, we can make recordings of that. But if we're not, if we're not careful about the maintaining the relationship as a, as a confidential one and making sure that people understand what they're supposed to do, um, then we're missing the biggest opportunity. It's, it's true that, for example, the most of the trade secret theft, if you will, loss, let's call it loss, that happens, happens as a result of insider um, leakage. But most of that is not because of malicious intent. It's because of misunderstanding. And that means that there's a real opportunity for management to focus its efforts on, on uh, means that will reduce misunderstanding. And that's, that's just classical communication and uh, relationship management. And I think you're right. I think we see a lot of issues regarding uh, human behavior, which is the, the main cause of, of data leakage. And, and I, you know, I, 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 you're the expert in this field. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but I think you're right. I think a lot of it is, is not malicious to begin with. I think m most of those um, leakages occur because of lack of knowledge, lack of training, uh, you know, involuntary behavior. But there is right. also a significant, um, certainly in the case law, a significant representation of trade secret issues that arise with ex-employees of, of a company. Um, and one question 
for example, is that was raised in the Q and A is, is there anything that, and, and I don't know if you're aware of this case, but is there anything that Tesla could have done or not to have the issues with these ex-employer that made the headlines um, resolved in a different manner? Well, <laughs> that the answer to that specific question can get a little complicated. Sometimes, sometimes companies, this is not necessarily a comment on Tesla, but sometimes companies use the, uh, you know, the court system's rather um, uh, heavy hand um, to send a message to other employees. And, and in some ways, that's, that's legitimate. Uh, you want everyone to understand that these rights, these trade secret rights, confidentiality is serious, and that you're going to be vigorous in your enforcement of, of your rights. But uh, fundamentally, the answer is if what you're trying to do is prevent problems from happening in the first place, there is a lot that you can do, uh, mainly in educating and training employees to be sensitive to these issues so that they don't misunderstand, so that they know what they're supposed to do. And there's no confusion about what's confidential, who should have access to it, and so on, right? So that's a, that's a big part of it. And then, um, I mean, back to your point about techno, technical tools, there's, there's a lot that uh, companies have available to them these days that doesn't necessarily spy on employees, but that uses access to what employees are doing on the, on the, you know, the company systems to throw up flags for behavior that is a little bit out of sync. So these systems use AI behavior analytics to find out if somebody is um, downloading more than they usually do and uh, or getting something from an area that might be a little bit uh, orthogonal to, to their actual responsibilities. And so a flag goes up and somebody um, investigates and checks to see what's happened. This, this helps a lot because again, if, if you assume that it's true, most of these circumstances are innocent. Um, it helps not only to prevent uh, you know, leakage from happening, but also uh, reinforces the reinforces the training. So it's that kind of vigilance in day-to-day -day management of the human relations that are involved that that really matters. I think one of the one of the risks that we face in using case law as uh, you know a teacher of what we're supposed to do is that the cases that talk about reasonable efforts and so forth just usually treat it in a very superficial way. It's, it's, it comes up on a motion to dismiss or a summary judgment, and they give like a little checklist. People here, you're using NDAs, you have some training, you have policies and procedures. Okay, bingo, you're done. Um, without really doing an analysis that's focused on the particular kind of confidential information that you're concerned about and what the specific risks are of that enterprise and what can be done to reduce them. And that's, that's the, uh, you know, it's the more robust, broader kind of, of effort that I think companies should be, should be doing. So just to, to piggyback a little bit on that point you just made regarding the use of, of AI tools or machine learning, I think we have seen over the past few years, the emergence of startups that are focused on this specifically, that 
that will uh, that will launch an AI tool on your internal systems to try to um, right. mitigate your risk, whether that be from inadvertent disclosure of information or that will, for example, monitor uh, customer relation uh, communications in order to potentially anticipate uh, a serious issue coming up uh, ahead of time. So I think that that probably is one of the hot areas for trade secret protection, mm -hmm. I suppose. Oh, oh, indeed. I mean, AI, <coughs> AI tools, because they're so effective and because they're so kind of impenetrable for the average person, you know, it, it, it just, it seems a little like magic. Uh, it can also seem very threatening. And of course, to the extent that we apply these tools in areas that has, that have some sort of social impact. And the, you know, the most frequent example I hear is, is sentencing uh, for judges, right. And, and trying to help, help judges come to a decision. Well, people then want to know what's, What's inside? Uh, what's inside the box? What is the algorithm that that drives this? And and so to the extent that we get things, tools that are socially very useful because they apply uh, across the board to some some very difficult problems, we run right into the problem of of secrecy as far as the public is concerned, um, and and the conundrum about how we incentivize companies to develop these tools um, in, order, you know, in order to provide the, the public good that they provide, while at the same time figure out a way to assure the public that there's not something nefarious going on here, there aren't, uh, there's not racial discrimination built into, the, built into the system and so forth. And how, how, do we, how do we figure this out? I mean, 100 years ago, we faced the same kind of problems around the drug industry. And we ended up creating regulatory agencies that would look at uh, drugs to make sure that they were safe and effective. And, you know, I, I don't know whether it's even conceivable to do something similar for AI, but, but we're headed in that kind of direction because the public seeing these things that has, these things that have such an impact, but not being able to understand them uh, presents us with a, a real challenge. And I think that's that's one issue we could certainly cover in a, in a different webinar altogether, the transparency and the ethics surrounding AI. And that clearly goes beyond simple IP rules. Um, time is is advancing very quickly. And I, there's a, two more questions that I'd like to, to okay. ask. One is an apparent dichotomy between uh, the recognition in some jurisdictions that IP is in that that trade secrets are in fact intellectual property, and in some other jurisdictions, there's not the same kind of recognition. Can you explain why that would be or how that came about? Yeah, you know that that's a. I, I think it's an artifact of of old. I mean, well, you'll you'll get my my uh, inclination here uh, of old academic thinking. The, the assumption that intellectual property is something that must be exclusionary, something that must give the holder the ability to exclude others um, in, in some way, and that secrecy doesn't, doesn't really uh, meet that. I, I think the, the real underlying concern is that it's not, it's not regulated at the front end. Uh, it's not a registered right. 
And so it just doesn't feel like intellectual property. Now, I thought we had solved this in 1995 with the TRIPS agreement, which recognizes expressly that um, what's covered under Article 39, that is, that's trade secrets, um, undisclosed information, it's called, uh, is an intellectual property right. But nobody seems to pay attention to that. And so the European Commission, when it issued the uh, Trade Secrets Directive, was careful to point out, I mean, there's a reason they had for that, which was they, they, they didn't want the enforcement directive to apply automatically uh, to trade secret cases because the enforcement directive was applicable to intellectual property rights. So if you made, if you acknowledged secrecy as an intellectual property right, then you'd get that, um, you'd get that effect. And they didn't want that. So there's a combination of things, but I'll, I'll tell you this, businesses view trade secrets as an intellectual property right. So, which leads me to, to the last question of this podcast. And I, I'm, I'm sorry for the listeners, we're going to go a little bit over time, but I, I think this one is important. We have these registered rights, like patents and copyright and trademarks, which fundamentally mean that there's some public disclosure, there's some advertisement of what we're trying to protect. So why do we encourage secrecy then? If we have patents that provide some sort of protection for information for a limited period of time, why why also have this regime that is shrouded in some very soft um, legislation in some countries, in other countries, not at all? Um, how does that square with the, with the circle of IP rights as we typically generally understand them to be? Yeah, well, it starts, um, you know, clearly patenting was, uh, was created uh, in order to provide government incentives for innovation, and it works. We know that. Uh, we've also recognized that um, information more broadly uh, needs to be shared in business and that government should be available to enforce promises of confidentiality. Now, for most information, there really isn't an overlap because the uh, when you take the, the general body of useful commercial information, um, what patentable subject matter is a very small subset of that. But there are circumstances where uh, companies might want to make a choice and choose secrecy over patenting. Um, and, and I think what we've learned in two, about 200 years in, in, the, in the US at least of trade secret jurisprudence is that it doesn't really upset the patent system to allow somebody, for example, to take a secret process that could have been patented and and use it in a way that uh, creates outputs, um, some sort of goods or services that benefit the public. It's another way of getting to the same thing. And, and yes, although you miss out on disclosure, you still get uh, what the innovation produces and that benefits the public too. And, and if we think for a moment about what we would be doing if we didn't have trade secret law, obviously there would be a lot of hoarding there wouldn't be dissemination of technology through licensing and so on. So as a thought experiment, I think that pretty much closes the case. And, and on those very wise words, um, I unfortunately must bring this conversation to an end because we've run out of time. But Jim, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today. Jim Pooley, thank you very, very much. Thank you to all of you who have attended this podcast. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Louis Pierre. 
If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.